This is a podcast about Jeopardy. Hello and welcome to Potent Potables, your weekly Jeopardy podcast where two former competitors bring you recaps and analysis of the week's Jeopardy episodes, a deep dive into a topic inspired by one of those episodes, and a quiz. I'm Kyle. And I'm Emily. And uh, hey, we're back. Uh, after our, yeah, after a couple of weeks off, um, how are you doing, Kyle? Oh, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing okay. <laughs> I was gonna say I'm doing <laughs> just fine. I'm doing okay. Uh, there is COVID in my house, uh, so we I'm are sorry. we are dealing with that, and yeah. But we recently took a nice trip with my family out east and got to see in person you. Yeah, for it the was first so time fun. since 2018. <laughs> yes, it was. It was weird being in the same actual space it, as it you. It was a little weird, but delightful. It was nice. Um, yeah, and our kids got to hang out. They did. They yeah. played. They yeah. ran around. They had fun. Mm-hmm. They they slid down a giant hundred year old wooden slide. They did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and one of our kids. Not going to say which one, uh, but one of them had a really tough time getting any speed on that slide for some reason, <laughs> and it was really distressing for that child, and we all felt kind of bad. But that and, child like, none of us on. could figure out what was happening. No, right? it just like everybody else just got on the slide and went whoosh, whoosh. and then this one child would get on, and it would be like. And just just couldn't get any speed, and that was really sad for uh, someone's child might have been mine. Child, yeah, uh, but yeah, but it all worked out. Yeah, but now we're now we're back in the internet. We're back where where, where we belong. Where we live. <laughs> oh. uh, to talk about Jeopardy, so uh, we're just jumping right back in skipping right over everything that happened while we were not making podcasts and we're back with monday june 20th and my Bialik hosting and our contestants are tori levitin a musician and teacher from englewood colorado keddy pan a head of new product development from henderson nevada and megan Waxpress, an attorney from berkeley california whose four-day cash winnings total fifty-one thousand. Six hundred one dollars, and full disclosure: I did not get to watch this episode, so I am a hundred percent guessing on the name pronunciations. We have the Jeopardy round categories: Washington slipped here, air travel, one small step for ham, horse idioms, chemical compounds commonly, and mashed up TV shows. They give you the mashup, and you take it apart and provide both titles at the $600 level i dream of anarchy <laughs> who doesn't um at this point not sure uh, i i am not an ar- anarchist but anyway um <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> but sometimes <laughs> there are days kyle there are days <laughs> when the powers that be seem untrustworthy um of course that was i dream of genie and Sons of Anarchy, although Tori tried Kings of Anarchy before Kitty got the rebound. Yes. And the one below that was What We Do in the Building. Just <laughs> <laughs> That's a fun mashup. That's uh, What We Do in the Shadows and Only Murders in the Building. Mm-hmm. I just just started watching What We Do in the Shadows. 
it is very funny. Hmm. I don't know anything about that show. Uh, Jermaine Clement from Flight of the Concords and Taika Watiti. Okay. He's a producer on it. I think he might be a writer, too. It's very funny. It's on FX, I think. Okay. It's about vampires, but what if vampires were just idiots? <laughs> I like it. Maybe I'll check it out. I just started watching Stranger Things Season 4, which mm. is uh, intense. Mm-hmm. That's what I've heard. Yeah. Haven't got there yet. Gotta gotta have watched Season 3 still. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ooh, I'm a little behind. It's difficult living in the second golden age of television. Yeah. Is that what this is called right now? I think so, but I'm not totally sure. Did I just make that up? I, I oh. Oh, no, no. Maybe we're in the third golden age. I don't know. Yeah. Two th- the Wikipedia golden age of television has the parenthetical 2000s to the present. Mm. Um, and it's also called the new second or third golden age of television depending on how you how you classify so i don't know anyway the original golden age of television was in the 1950s perhaps depending on who you ask okay yeah <laughs> okay new golden. I, I i i am not kidding you this is straight from wikipedia the new golden age brought creator driven tragic dramas up to the 2000s and 2010s including buffy the vampire slayer and oz um, <laughs> it, it continues from there. <laughs> like literally, the first television show that is cited as evidence that we're in a golden age is Buffy. So there you go. It must be is, You're right. Yeah, that's all we need to know. Incredible. Yeah, the first Daily Double is in the Washington slipped here category. Uh, it's at the six hundred dollar level, and it's pick number six. Uh, Kenny finds it. She is at twelve hundred. Megan's at 400, Tori's at 200, and she bets it all. Gets the clue. In 1922, the Interior Secretary gave an oil company exclusive rights in this Wyoming reserve and got a $200,000 payoff. And she gets it correct with what is Teapot Dome. The major scandal of the Harding? Harding administration. Harding? Yes. Harding. Yes. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Megan is at 4,400, Keddy's at 3,000, Tori is at 4,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, Belgians, Grammy-winning songs, old names on the map, Sadjectives, plays and playwrights, and the Zodiac sign, dot, dot, dot. Oh, the $800 level of Belgians Mayam was hosting, and the clue is in the 1920s, priest and physicist Georges Lemaitre... I don't know Very how nice. to pronounce it. Thank you. Yeah, I, I did a really good job with it. Uh, formulated the modern version of this sudden expansion model of the universe, and that's the Big Bang Theory. Oh, yeah. Oh, with Mayim right mm-hmm. there. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, okay. I feel like we've had that as a correct response before already, and I think we're just going to keep getting it in clues as long as mm-hmm. Mayim is hosting Jeopardy. Unfortunately, over the last few weeks, we have missed the opportunity for Ken to be hosting when... The correct answer is rake instead of hoe, or hoe <laughs> instead of rake. I did not know that Diane von Furstenberg was Belgian. She was uh, the designer in the $1,200 clue of Belgians, uh, famous for the wrap dress that she created. I did not know that Diane von Furstenberg was a person. Mm, so now you do. Now I know. Now you know. Yeah. 
she's a she's a name that comes up. She will never come up without a reference to the wrap dress. Hmm. If the clue contains Diane von Furstenberg, then the answer is wrap dress and vice versa. Okay. Yeah. Also good to know. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number two um, comes up pretty late in the round in the Zodiac sign at the $2,000 level. And Ketty finds it at the 25th pick. Uh, she has 12200 So she's in the lead with Megan at 10400 and Tori at 9800 She decides to try and make it a runaway. She wagers 8800 which I like. Yeah. You know, like... I don't think it's ever... Or that I shouldn't say I don't think it's ever. I think a lot of the time, betting big with a daily double is a good call. Yeah. I mean, if you can turn the game into a lock, like that is... Uh, uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Someone meant, once made the case to me that people should always... Um, bet the absolute most they can on daily doubles. I'm not sure I would go that far, but like yeah. ultimately, like if you keep the bet small, you're kind of just kicking the can down the road, right? Like, right. Eventually, you get to the final question, and like if you like the placement of the daily double and you feel good about the category, like maybe just really go big. I, yeah. I don't know. I like it. Anyway, uh, she gets the clue represented by. A creature that Zeus turned into to abduct Europa. And she tries what is Capricorn, but they were looking for Taurus here. Yes. Did I say her wager? It was 8,800. Yeah, this would have taken her up to a little bit more than twice Megan's total. Uh, But it doesn't. It drops her down. And then she finds Daily Double number three uh, at pick number 28. It's a $2,000 clue of Sagittives. She's at eighteen hundred. Megan's at ten thousand four hundred. Tori's at ninety eight hundred, and she bets the maximum, two thousand. Mm-hmm. Gets the clue. Insert an M into a word meaning abstinent from alcohol, and you have this adjective meaning grave in mood. Uh, and she does not come up with it. She offers no response, but it is somber from sober. Unfortunate swing for Ketty there. Yep. She does get one more right um, to make it back into the positive uh, and get to participate um, in Final Jeopardy. Uh, So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Tori's in the lead with 10,200. Megan is just 200 behind with 10,000. Ketty is at 200. And we have the Final Jeopardy category, British History. And the clue from the Greek for alone, it was nixed by Parliament in 1649 after being deemed unnecessary, burdensome, and dangerous. Ketty does not come up with anything. She just has what is and uh, didn't wager anything. So stays at 200. Megan has what is, and then she started writing something and crossed it out. And then the crown, that is incorrect. Uh, she's wagered 95.99. Um, Tori guessed what is solo. That is not correct. Um, she's wagered 10,000. Drops her down to 200 and they were looking for the monarchy yeah so if you remember 1649 was the revolution yeah i have to remember your british history here which i am not that good at but i think i would have gotten there but maybe not i don't know anyway um so megan with her 401 
gets her fifth win. Yes. Uh, yeah. She, she is good at winning with small amounts. Uh-huh. And that is okay. A win is a win. A win is a win. That is correct. So on Tuesday, we have the contestants Jenny Scholar, a preschool teacher from Madison, Wisconsin, Rob Kaplan, a teaching physician from Los Angeles, California, and Megan Waxpress, an attorney from Berkeley, California, who is a five-game winner going to the tournament champions with a total of $52,002. We have the Jeopardy round categories Geographic Superlatives, Red All Over, Taking Stock Symbol, TV Factoids, Kids' books and three letters in a row alphabetically. I thought the $400 clue of three letters alphabetically was a bit misleading and kind of unnecessarily tricky. The clue is it's the two word family relationship you have with the child of your mom's brother. Mm. So now the contestants got it like correct. It was a triple stumper. Megan said, What is nephew? which is not the right relation. Jenny said, what is avuncular? And Rob said, what is uncle? So none of those were correct. It's a first cousin, but cousin is not necessary because the three letters are RST in the word first. Mm. And to me, it seems like, I don't know, that seems like a lot of extra work for a $400 clue to get to the word first. Yeah. But. Yeah. I had two separate incidents of my brain suggesting the Disney Pixar counterpart of the correct answer uh, this week. Okay. Yeah. So geographic superlatives at the $800 level. Uh, There was a picture that located in Venezuela. It has the longest uninterrupted drop of any waterfall. And I know... That it is Angel Falls, but every time my brain will be like, Paradise, Paradise Falls, Falls, a land lost in time. Mm-hmm. It is um, a land lost in time, that's true. <laughs> yeah, so thanks, brain. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in that same geographic superlatives category at the $600 level, and Jenny finds it at the 13th pick. She has... 600. She's the only one with any money. Uh, Megan and Rob are both at negative 600. She wagers a thousand, as well she should, and gets the clue this largest bay is part of the Indian Ocean, and she knows that is the Bay of Bengal. So, at the end of the Jeopardy round, Megan's at 1200. Rob is still at negative 200. We're back at negative 200. Anyway, negative 200. And Jenny's at 4600. We have the double Jeopardy categories. History, movie inspirations, I don't hear a symphony, medical breakthroughs, transplants, and MRI. Uh, that is M period R period in quotation marks, and I like the uh, affirmative. Mm-hmm. Um, so each each response will be two words, starting with M and then R. Yeah, I, I don't know if I should take issue with the two thousand dollar response. They showed a picture. The clue is this French composer created many of his works as parts of ballets. Rob rang in and said, who is Ravel? And when on Jeopardy, you're naming a person, you give the last name. Mm-hmm. And that's acceptable. Also, there are no other French composers named Ravel other than Maurice Ravel, except each response is two words starting with these two letters. And he did not give the m of the mr Mm -hmm. so uh, i don't know 
Yeah. He also wasn't prompted. I don't know. He probably would have got... I mean, he knew Ravel, so he probably knew his first name. Like, I'm sure he would have gotten it correct. It just struck me as the conceit of the category is MR, and you should give the M. Yeah. I think I think he should have had to... If I'm remembering the, like, the, like pre-taping briefing correctly, I think they told us that you can always just give the last name unless... The category title indicates, you know, that, they, for instance, that they, you know, like, like this category, that you're supposed to kind of fit some kind of uh, wordplay-ish constraint, right? Uh, and, that, and then you have, they can just rule you wrong if right. you don't phrase your answer in a way that fits the category. Right. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, that's my recollection. Did you have any particular thoughts about I don't hear a symphony? I enjoyed it. Uh, Rob obviously knows some some classical music. He feels comfortable there. The story about Mahler not writing a Ninth Symphony is... It wasn't just Mahler. That was a common uh, superstition among composers. That once you, once you write number nine, you're going to die. Mm-hmm. So... And the $2,000 level is a triple stumper, a bit like a symphony. The first work called This for Orchestra instead of for a solo instrument was in 1925 by Hindemith, who... It's an interesting composer. Um, that's a concerto. A concerto is for a solo instrument or solo group uh, backed by a full orchestra. Mm-hmm. Daily Double number one was the first pick of the round. Oh, yeah. Probably should have talked about it earlier. It's pick number one in the medical breakthroughs category at the $1,200 level. Uh, Rob finds it. The same scores as the end of the Jeopardy round, which are Megan at twelve hundred, Rob at negative two hundred, and Jenny at forty six hundred. Uh, he wagers two thousand because he absolutely should. Gets a clue. Sir Martin Evans shared a two thousand seven Nobel Prize for his discoveries with these undifferentiated biological units, and he guesses what are prions, but those are stem cells. Mm-hmm. Makes a lot of sense. And daily double number three is in the movie inspirations category at the $1,200 level. And Rob finds this one as well. Uh, This one he finds at the 28th pick, almost at the end of the round. Um, He has 13,400 to Jenny's 10,200 and Megan's 6,800. He wagers 3,100 and gets the clue. Padre Frey Tormento, who helped the orphans of Teshkoko while wearing a mask in the ring, inspired this 2006 comedy, and he knows it is Nacho Libre. Nacho Libre. Yeah. That's such a goofy movie. Mm, I have not watched it. Or a goofy movie. Neither one have I watched. <gasps> um, Did you even grow up in the 90s? Apparently not. Unbelievable. Well, yeah, you should watch sorry. both of them. I will. They are very different. <laughs> when you said it was a goofy movie, I was like, yeah, I'm also supposed to see that one. <laughs> uh, okay, so at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, Megan is at 8,400, Rob is at 16,500, Jenny's at 12,200. We get the final Jeopardy category, Geography Words, and the clue from Greek for chief and sea. This word originally referred to the Aegean, known for its many island groups. Uh, Megan got it correct with what is archipelago mm-hmm. and she wagered 201 jenny got it incorrect but what is tyrannian tyrannian and she wagered 8700 i do not know where that number comes from yeah and uh 
Rob also got it correct. He wrote, what is something that was uh, unintelligible? He wagered 7901, which was a cover bet. And Megan, with some savvy wagering, mm-hmm. wins by $2 over Rob. Way to go. Mm-hmm. Wins her sixth game. So on Wednesday, we have the contestants Jeff Weinstock, a marketing lecturer from Miami, Florida, Sarah Brogren, a writer from Burbank, California, and Megan Waxpress, an attorney from Berkeley, California, whose six-day cash winnings total 60603 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, blanking book titles, old ad slogans, word origins, the senator's first name, face slash palm, and the song of the day. It's embarrassing that I know extremely obscure nursery rhyme is better than I know the work of David Bowie. But Is that embarrassing? I think so. I don't think so. I don't know. Anyway, I did not know that Thursday's Child was a David Bowie title, but I was just about able to get myself there from has far to go, except that I had to start from like Monday's child is fair of face. Tuesday's child is full of grace, which I don't know why I know that nursery. Do do other people know? Do you know that one? I've heard it. I don't know. Okay. I'm sure people know it. Yeah. Old people. Yeah. It's an archaic one. Yeah. Also, I take issue with 19, the 1993 got milk campaign being the old ad slogans category. <laughs> like, that was just a minute ago. <laughs> Stop it. Yeah. Although... You were like a like a toddler or something, right? Like... Yeah. But they yeah. re-ran it. I remember it. Okay. But also, they don't use it anymore. Yeah. So it's old. It is that. old in that it is not current. Yeah. Daily Double number one is in the word origins category at the $400 level. Megan finds it at pick number 12. She's at $1,600. Sarah's at $1,400. Jeff is up to $4,200. She wagers $1,000 and gets the clue. Bad air was thought to cause this disease, so it was given a name meaning bad air. It's caused by parasites. She guesses what is cholera, but that is malaria. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Megan is in third place at 2,800, Sarah's at 3,800, and Jeff is at 5,000. We get the f- double Jeopardy categories. Hail to the Chief, the 1800s, On Planet Pop Culture, Double Double E, Rocks and Plants, and In This Economy. <laughs> always a fun joke. It is always a fun joke. Jokes this economy <laughs> um we left a couple on the board yeah yeah you know, and one in rocks and plants and one in the 1800s uh nobody listened to your deep dive at the two thousand dollar level of hail to the che- to the chef did i say chief when i read that mm-hmm. i meant to say hail to the chef whatever it is <laughs> Uh, hail to the chef at the $2,000 level. This French creator of peach melba and melba toast was nicknamed the king of chefs and chef of kings. That's a Scoffier. It is. Sarah said who's Michelin, which isn't a bad guess. Yeah, not a bad guess. And again, I did a whole deep dive on this. And yet mm-hmm. my brain is like, gusto. I'm like, that is from Ratatouille. <laughs> like, knock it the heck off. Ah, <laughs> uh, Classic. <laughs> 
Uh, and just a few weeks ago, right before we took our unplanned sort of break, a triple stumper in the 1800s at $800 level, in 1800, this sailing man visited Haydn, who composed a cantata on the Battle of the Nile. Megan guessed who is William Tell. That's Horatio Nelson. Lord Nelson. Mm-hmm. Oh, we had um, we had a reversal at the $400 level of double-double-E. Uh, the clue there was, of a certain pair of through-the-looking-glass characters, this one fits the category. Uh, Megan said, who are Tweedledee and Tweedledum? It was accepted. Uh, although Mayim clarified that they were just looking for Tweedledee. Later, um, before Daily Double number two, they uh, reversed it and said that because she had provided both when they asked for just one, um, they were changing that to a ruling that she was incorrect. Speaking of Daily Double Two, uh, it's in the On Planet Pop Culture category at the $1,200 level. And Sarah found it at the 23rd pick. She had 7400 at this point. Uh, she was in the lead with Jeff just behind her at 7000 and Megan at 4800 She wagers 3000 and gets the clue. This member of singing royalty said Rod Stewart, Elton John, and I were going to form a band called Hair, Nose, and Teeth. She guesses who is Mick Jagger. Uh, the correct answer is Freddie Mercury. She says, oh, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know why that makes sense. Well, a member of singing royalty would... Because he's from oh Queens. yeah, okay, and also, gotcha. He had very large and prominent teeth. Uh, okay, all right. Okay, is, and I've heard some people speculate that his like the the structure of his mouth contributed to his uh, vocal prowess. Hmm, which may have been true, may not have been true. I don't know about the science of mouth structure. I am an instrumentalist, not a vocalist. Hmm. Uh, Daily Double number three is in the Rocks and Plants category. Pick number 28 at the $1,600 level, and Sarah finds this one as well. She's at 8,000, Megan's at 5,600, Jeff's at 7,000, and she wagers 1,000. Gets the clue, the dimension type of this metamorphic rock is in blackboards, while the crush type can go into composite roofing. And she said, what is granite? It's not. Uh, (laughs) Which is incorrect. Uh, It is slate. Mm Mm-hmm. Why you might call a blackboard a slate. Yeah. So at the end of the double Jeopardy round, Sarah and Jeff are tied with 7,000. Megan's at 5,600. We have the final Jeopardy category, 19th century literature. And the clue, this author first thought of a parrot before choosing another bird equally capable of speech. I think Kyle knew this one because he did a deep dive on this a while back a couple of years yeah uh megan uh responded who is she had robert louis stevenson almost written and then crossed out and she got edgar Allan poet that that is that is a lot of writing to do that's a ton of writing (laughs) uh with the stylus on the crummy like not not the newest technology right they like those things are very slow to write with i found and hard to be legible Yes. Yeah. So anyway, she got she got it correct with Edgar Allan Poe. She wagered fourteen oh one, which this is a smart wager because you're you're expecting Sarah and Jeff to wager either everything or nothing. Mm-hmm. Everything I think is the right bet, but in case one of them wagers nothing, she will land at seven thousand one, be above. Sarah 
ended up going for Stevenson, uh, what Megan had crossed out, and she wagered everything, uh, which is the correct move. Um, but unfortunately, since she has the wrong answer, she drops down to zero. And Jeff has, who is Edgar Allan Poe? Correct answer. I guess the correct wager is the one that wins, but I don't know what he was doing here with 4202. It's a cover over Megan. Oh, but I, I see. Uh, but that's not like that's not really strategic because Sarah can just bet it all. And win. Right. like I don't it's still banking on Sarah betting either nothing or getting it wrong. Right. Rather than giving yourself the best chance of winning. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't buy yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but in any case, the way things shake out for a wager of 4202 is enough. It brings up, up to 11,202 and gives him the win. Yep. So we have uh, another six game winner. She had defeated a six-game winner before uh, while we were on break, mm-hmm. uh, who had come shortly after Ryan, the end of Ryan Long's streak. Uh, so we just, goodness gracious, so many mm-hmm. of them. Uh, so on Thursday, we have Andrew Lewis, a lawyer from Oakland, California. Whitney Wood, a history professor from Nanaimo, British Columbia, Canada. And Jeff Weinstock, a marketing lecturer from Miami, Florida, who's one-day cash winnings. Total $11,202. And we have the Jeopardy round categories. My personal quotation device. Kitchen tools. Pop culture is always in season. You've been booked. The devil. And the details with D in quotation marks. Uh, the pop culture and always is always in season I thought was fun, but a, a bit uh, gettable. I guess it's a, the Jeopardy round, so it's going to be going to be easier but it's good to get a, a shout out to megan the stallion on jeopardy the yeah level hot girls uh-huh. yep i appreciated that <laughs> the you've been booked category was not about literature it was about words for different kinds of books i guess yeah, different types um, of books yeah. <laughs> log book manual a novel a ledger i don't know i thought it was I, it wouldn't have occurred to me to create such a category. I guess that's why I'm not a Jeopardy writer. <laughs> right. Once we were in it, I was like, oh, this is this is fun. But yeah, and it, it's a good a good category, and it's a simple enough concept. There's a triple stumper at the $600 level of my personal quotation device, uh, which is a pretty good one. A put-down, please. Oscar Wilde told a fellow poet who complained of a conspiracy of this to join it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was... Silence. Jeff guessed what are dunces. Whitney guessed what are fools. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a conspiracy of silence. Yeah. And I think Jeff was thinking of a confederacy of dunces, right? I would assume. Yes, I would assume that as well. Similar words, not the same thing. Yeah. I just finished reading the novel A Confederacy of Dunces, although I still don't know whether the title is like a quotation drawn from somewhere else mm. or whether it's... Oh, here it is. The book's title refers to an epigram from Jonathan Swift's essay, Thoughts on Various Subjects, Moral and Diverting. Okay. Now we know. Daily Double number one is in the devil at the thousand dollar level, and Jeff finds it at the 17th pick. Uh, He's at 1400. Uh, Whitney's at 5000 and Andrew's at 800. He bets it all. Nice move. And gets the clue. A debate provoker. This two word phrase dates to a 1616 work where one pleadeth for nothing but for the kingdom of Satan. Satan's and, and kingdom are both spelled weird. 
there. Um, anyway, he gets it correct uh, with a devil's advocate. Mm-hmm. So at the end of the Jeopardy round, um, Jeff is at 3,000, Whitney's at 4,800, Andrew's at 3,800, and we have the double Jeopardy categories. It's Anarchy, Vowel Consonant, Vowel Consonant, Published Posthumously, That Used to Be a Trademark, Mountains, and it came from a graphic novel. I did not do very well with the graphic novel category. Oh, really? I yeah. Thought, I thought for sure. Yeah. Although, no, these were all kind of... It's it's about the thing that came from the graphic novel rather than the graphic novel. It also is, like, not my, like, my genre of graphic novel. Um, you know, okay. these are all kind of... Um, action-y, like like superhero-y, like closer to the comic book side. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about it, but now that you mention it, yeah. Yeah, which like, no hate, you know, I like, I'm daunted by the, like, the enormity of the comic book universe and don't really know what my entry point would be, like, whatever. These are not, these are not that, but I I tend, the, the graphic novels that I read tend to be more kind of on the, like, fantasy sci-fi memoir like like in, like those kinds of graphic novels mm, and less uh-huh. less so um you know kind of less likely to be stuff that's like adapted into like action movies yeah that reminds me i read the first two books of march oh uh, while i was out east march. it was very good good i'm glad I ran out of time to read the third one because my brother has it on his bookshelf. Oh, or okay. More my sister-in-law. It's on their bookshelf. I don't know who mm-hmm. got it. But I saw that and I was like, oh, yeah, I'm supposed to read that. Yeah, those ones are great. I hope you liked them. I did. Good. Very good. Good. We can keep making this podcast then. <laughs> we talk so much about the mystery of Edwin Drood. I mean, relative to its its position in like... I don't know, public discourse. And like, it's, I don't know, quality <laughs> in yes. comparison to other Dickens works. <laughs> yep. or, yeah. Yeah. But the contestants did not know that the mystery of Edwin Drood was pub- was uh, was by Charles D- Dickens. So that $1,200 published posthumously clue was a triple stumper. Yeah. I liked the vowel consonant, vowel consonant category yeah it was pretty good yeah i especially uh, the 1600 dollars clue to get out of control is to run this from a malaysian word uh that is amok uh jeff got it i liked it being in that category because i feel like half the time that i encounter the phrase run amok in writing mm. uh it's on social media and the person has spelled it with five letters a-m-u-c-k um <laughs> It was a, I thought it was a good sort of high dollar value clue because you might not necessarily know how to spell it, even if you've heard it before. Right. right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, at the $800 level of that category, an object of worship, Whitney got it correct with what is an idol. I thought an icon, would that also work? Oh. Or does that not necessarily fit the same thing? I, it might work. Um, I think that people who use icons devotionally, like I'm think like like Eastern yeah. Orthodox Christians, might object to referring to an icon as an object of worship. 
Mm-hmm. Um, right, okay, you know, so, that, right, because the idol, you worship the idol, but the icon is just kind of a, a symbol of... Yeah. Okay. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. But I'm not... Sh- if somebody had rung in and said icon, I think the judges would have had to think very carefully about it because correct theology of, like... <laughs> icons is not something jeopardy probably wants to wade into and and instead the question would be has it ever been defined that way anywhere Mm -hmm. you know they might have taken icon but if they had there would i think if if somebody had said icon i think either way there would have been some fuss sure yeah so i'm glad we didn't have to worry Mm -hmm. about it Daily Double number two is at pick number two in the round. It's a $1,600 clue of that used to be a trademark. Jeff finds it. He is at $4,200. Whitney's at $4,800. Andrew's at $3,800. Any wagers, $2,400. He gets the clue. Westinghouse first trademarked this word as the name of a washing machine. Now it refers to an establishment. And Jeff has no idea where to where to begin with this. He guesses, what is the business? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the business is something that you give someone. Mm. Uh, but that's a laundromat. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jeff also finds... Isn't this what happened last time? Jeff also finds Daily Double number three, but much later in the round. Yes. At the 28th pick. Yeah, same thing. Uh, it's in published posthumously at the $1,600 level. At this point, he has 9000 Andrew's at 11000 Whitney's at 7600 Jeff wagers everything. Which... Feels good about books, I guess. Yeah. And I uh, guess the clue, this author traded China for the Korean DMZ in The Eternal Wonder, published 40 years after her 1973 death. And he guesses Buck, as in Pearl Buck, and that is correct. And with that, he takes a pretty decisive lead. Yes, he does. So at the end of the Double Jeopardy round, he is at 20,000. I don't know why I said that weird. He is at 20,000. Whitney is at 7,600, and Andrew is at 11,000. We get the Final Jeopardy category, Classic Albums. And the clue, this classic album by a Southern rocker gets its title from a Civil War quote by a Union Admiral. This is a triple stumper. Whitney did not offer a guess, just said, what is question mark? Wagered 5,000. Andrew wrote, what is Let It Burn? Uh, That is incorrect, and... Uh, wager 10,000, which is a bit, well, no, I guess you have to bet that much because Jeff's only going to wager 1,001 or 2,001, so you're going to have to bet big anyway. Yeah. Uh, And Jeff wrote, what is the whites of their eyes? That's a revolutionary war, not a civil war, quote. Um, Also not an admiral. Uh, And he wagered 2,001. That's damn the torpedoes. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, I always get them mixed up, the admirals. Uh, is it Farragut? I think so, yes. Um, David Farragut, yep. Nailed it. Yeah. I always forget which admiral is which, but yes. Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Not what I normally think of as Southern Rock. Yeah. I think, you know, Leonard Skinner. That kind of thing. Anyway. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, whatever. It's damn yeah. torpedoes. And mm-hmm. it was a triple stumper, but Jeff finishes with 17999 Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
I saw some I saw some fuss about uh, referring to Tom Petty as a Southern rocker. Yeah, people did not appreciate that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. So on Friday, June twenty fourth, we have the contestants Lauren Drinkwater, a psychotherapist from Rockville, Maryland; Joe Feldman, a technology professional from Bethesda, Maryland. And Jeff Weinstock, a marketing lecturer from Miami, Florida, whose two-day cash winnings totaled 29201 And we have the Jeopardy round categories, North American history, baseball babes, palindromic numbers, 2022 anniversaries, foxes, and words in comparison. Responses will be made up of letters from the word comparison, where it was fun to see two separate shade of red clues. A shade of red or to leave someone stuck on an island is maroon. A shade of red associated with embarrassment is crimson. It is. When is crimson associated with embarrassment? Like, is there a particular phrase that I just don't know? I don't know. Because, like, I said that and I'm like, okay, yeah. Uh, Makes sense, I guess. But... I don't I don't have a particular like reference point for that in my brain. Yeah, yeah, neither do I. It's um the feeling you get when you bring up that you went to Harvard and then it gets really awkward. <laughs> uh wh- what's 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 that? What's Harvard? Never heard of it. <laughs> it gets really awkward when I bring that up because I didn't go to Harvard. <laughs> yeah. I was surprised how many people nicknamed Babe were associated with baseball. I agree, because really, Babe Ruth is the only Babe that met. He's the Babe, right? Like, you refer to yeah. him as the Babe. Any other Babe in baseball after that, which is, you know, I, I would just think it's like, well, I'll never be the Babe. I guess I'm just a Babe. Which I guess there are worse things than being a Babe, you know? <laughs> yeah. For me, this is an obligatory reminder in the North American history category at the $400 level that Cinco de Mayo is not uh, Mexican Independence Day. It is the celebration of the uh, Mexican victory over Napoleon III's forces at the Battle of Puebla. Yes, I, I'm, I'm duly reminded. I was, I was delighted at how uh, the Be More Specific went at the $200 level of 2022 anniversaries. Uh, the clue there was 100 years ago in November 1922, Howard Carter made this discovery some 3,000 years after the death that caused its creation. And Jeff rang in and said, what is King Tut? Mayim said, more specific. He said, what is King Tut's body as a mummy? <laughs> Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is not how they probably were expecting him to phrase it but i thought it was great and they had to take it they were looking for king tut's tomb i mean yeah he did discover it daily double number one is in palindromic numbers at the 600 dollar level it's pick number 26 it's very late in the round uh jeff finds it he's at 2200 joe is at 5400 lauren's at 4200 any bets at all which he should gets the clue year of james a garfield's entire presidency uh, it's, it's a pretty easy one <laughs> uh, even if you're not sure you just got to get the century right and that gives you the year he gets it right with 1881 
Yeah, as long as you remember you're in the palindromic yeah. numbers. Palindromic, palindromic. Uh, as long as you remember you're in the palindromic numbers category, you should be all set. I think the only risk here is like freezing up and forgetting yeah. your category. Yeah, 1881. He gets it. And so at the end of the Jeopardy round, Jeff is at 4,600, Joe is up to 6,800, and Lauren is at 5,200. And we have the double Jeopardy categories, city parking places, uh, five-syllable words, spies like them, facts and figures, people in poetry and and on drums, dot, dot, dot. I... Uh, I did okay in the drums category. Nice. Yeah. Which I don't, you know, I mean, it's it's pop music, so I, I super don't know it all that much. I guess I have gotten better at it. I have paid attention to some names. Nice. I knew the Foo Fighters, and I knew Travis Barker. Those are the ones I remember I remember Max Weinberg from Conan O'Brien's show. I'm not sure why... Because I really did not watch it very much, but Max Weinberg stuck in my head. He also plays with uh, Bruce Springsteen, so maybe, maybe that's how I remember. Mm, yeah, had a rebound in five syllable words. Uh, the clue there was: it's the process of verifying yourself in order to use a computer system. Some might require two-factor. Uh, Lauren tried. What is authentication? That has six uh. syllables, so it doesn't fit the category. Authentication is the correct answer, and Joe got it. Authentication is very much on my mind as I start my sabbatical and try to figure out how people who are subbing for me are going to be able to like log into all the official church accounts, because I don't really want to be forwarding the email confirms all the time when I'm supposed to not be working. Why not? <laughs> I, I know. No, I get it. I know. I, that's what how do I, feel I have every to time do? I get a work email during the, my summer break. I'm like, I am. I am not contracted to work right now. What do you want from me? Uh huh. Uh, Daily double number two is in people in poetry at the sixteen hundred dollar level. Jeff finds it at the twelfth pick. At this point, uh, he has eleven thousand four hundred. To Lauren's 10,400 and Joe's 6,000, he wagers 2,400 and gets the clue. His poem, America, says, Burroughs is in Tangiers. I don't think he'll come back. It's sinister. Uh, Jeff tries who's Sandberg. That is incorrect. Allen Ginsberg is who they were looking for here. I don't think I would have gotten this one. No, I, I couldn't remember who wrote America. I wasn't able to get there. Uh, and Daily Double number three yeah. is in the city parking places category at the $800 level. Joe finds it. He's at 11200 Jeff is at 8200 Lauren's at 12000 Anyway, it's 3000 uh, It's, uh, yeah, it takes the lead. He gets the clue. An 1880s deal between George Patton's dad and L.A. led to a park later named for this other World War II general in 1942. He gets it correct with what is MacArthur Park, which I only know exists because mm -hmm. of that song, which I only know that that song exists because Weird Al did a parody of it about Jurassic Park. And that's that's mm. the only way that I know that that song even was a thing. I did not know that the song or the park were mm. a thing. 
or the Weird Al song, for that matter. Um, well, now you know. My kids are lobbying to... Yeah, now I know. My kids are lo- lobbying to watch the movie Jurassic Park. So, there's that. Good. Good. We've worked ourselves around. <laughs> I thought for, for a brief second before you said Jurassic Park, I thought you were going to say that your kids were lobby- lobbying to watch the uh, Weird Al movie, UHF. <laughs> oh, I remember UHF. Um, no, my, my kids are lo- lobbying to watch the movie patent no um uh <laughs> hey patent's a good movie <laughs> I, i've heard it is i i haven't seen that one either that one or a goofy movie <laughs> um <laughs> you haven't seen a lot of movies apparently now that we're now that so we're talking many. about it <laughs> and they have so much in common <laughs> um yes yeah yeah if anybody has a strong opinion about whether a six-year-old should be allowed to watch jurassic park let me know um I anyway. imagine it would probably be a bit scary. Yeah, that's that's what I'm thinking. All right. Anyway, uh, at the end of Double Jeopardy, uh, Joe's in the lead with 16,600. Jeff is at 11,400. Lauren's at 11,200. We have the final Jeopardy category, Oscar-winning actors. And the clue, each of the three films for which he won an Oscar from 1975, 1983, and 1997 also garnered a Best Lead Actress Oscar. Lauren gets this one correct uh, with who is Jack Nicholson. Uh, She's wagered 800. That brings her up to 12,000. Jeff started writing something else down and then changed it to who is Marlon Brando, and he's wagered 11,001. So he's trying to cover an all-in from Lauren, uh, but that drops him down to 399. And Joe got it correct as well with who is Jack Nicholson and a wager of 6,300, a cover bet and a little bit, uh, which gives him 22,900 and makes him our new Jeopardy champion. That is right. Yeah. So So we had a little bit of turnover this week. Kind of getting back to normal, I guess. Yeah, it's nice to nice to see some some different champions over the course of a week once in a while. Love the champs we've had, but mm-hmm. it was starting oh, yeah. to get a yeah, little definitely. like it's it's gotten a bit I don't know absurd <laughs> the amount of like we got another tournament champion qualifier we got another tournament champion qualifier that's like back to back to back. Yeah. I mean, remember, like, we used to be like, oh, you know, it's so unfortunate if you have the, like, unusual bad luck of, like, you know, having to, like, take your shot at Jeopardy when there's some, like, super champion on a record-setting, uh, you know, like, uh, winning streak. And now we're like, well, <laughs> right, you know, it's just record-setting winning streak after record-setting winning streak. Like, y- you know, right. you're lucky if you get in there. You know, in the couple of days between when we find new super champions. Yeah. All right. Well, this is the point in the middle of the episode where we take a moment to remind you that we have a Patreon. It's patreon.com slash potent potables. Um, if you have the funds available to um, contribute a couple bu- bucks a month uh, to help us offset the costs of making the podcast, we would greatly appreciate it. And we greatly appreciate those of you who do. We have some content behind the paywall there. Um, one thing we try to make sure to do is uh, put the quiz questions on the Patreon as soon as we finish recording. 
so that you can get an early look at them before the episode is edited and posted. Um, And we also like to take this time when we're asking you for money to acknowledge that there are other things that are more important in the world. um, And that if you are uh, limited in what you can do with your funds, um, we'd rather you support some of those other things in the world. And this week, especially, we wanted to highlight abortionfunds.org, the national network of abortion funds, um, to help people access the care that they need as it gets harder uh, to do that in this country. Um, yeah, that's about what I'm going to say about that. Yeah. So, Kyle, mm-hmm. do you have deep dive guesses? Should I should I rev on abortion for no, a little longer? No, no, I do, I do. I have some. I think I've narrowed okay. it down. Okay. Uh, are you talking about stem cells and stem cell research? I am not talking about stem cells or stem cell research. Okay. Are you talking about Major Andre? I'm not. No. Are you talking about Tecumseh? Uh, nope. Um, I am not, although he was on the list. Um, All right. Lay it on me. So, Thursday's game, the Double Jeopardy round, it's anarchy at the $2,000 level. In July 1917, Emma Goldman got two years in prison for opposing this wartime measure authorized by Congress in May. Uh, that's the draft. We're not going to talk about the draft. We're going to talk about Emma Goldman. Okay. Um, yeah, because... She was a big deal, and I was like, you know what? Like, I know she was important. I don't remember a whole lot about her. It seems like she pops up in history in a bunch of different places, you know, uh, like areas. Um, So I'm going to look up Emma Goldman and um, learn something about her life. And uh, that's what we're doing today. Um, Yeah. Sounds good. So. Uh, yeah, I, I emerged from my deep dive research to like, like attack my husband and be like, do you know how important Emma Goldman was in history? And he's like, I don't, I don't know who that is. (laughs) Um, the answer is no, I don't. (laughs) All right. So, uh, Emma Goldman was, uh, she was born, uh, into an Orthodox Jewish family in Kovno in the Russian empire, uh, which is uh, in modern day Lithuania, um, the, the particular place where she was born, um, uh, her mother, Taba Binowicz, had two older daughters from a previous marriage uh, to a man who had died of tuberculosis. Uh, the two older daughters are Helena and Lena. And um, then her mother remarried um, to a man named Abraham Goldman. And Emma was the first of their four children. Uh, she was born in 1869. Um, and then three younger brothers were born, not all of whom survived to adulthood. It was a tumultuous home. Uh, her father was violent. Uh, I think we would characterize it as abusive today, although, you know, kind of where the, where that line is in child rearing has changed over the years. But it, the stories from her childhood, I think we would now characterize as abusive um, and very controlling. When she was a young girl, her family moved to the village of Papile. I'm totally guessing on pronunciations here, where her father ran an inn. And then they moved again when she was seven to the Prussian city of Konigsberg. Um, she was enrolled in a school there um, and began her 
education uh, with some some tumult and some some traumatic stories, uh, but uh, really took to the the academic part, even though her teachers were jerks. Um, the family then moved to St. Petersburg, where her father opened one unsuccessful store after another. Um, the family was living in poverty and the children had to work. Uh, Goldman took an assortment of jobs, including one in a corset shop. As a teenager, she begged her father to allow her to return to school, but instead he threw her French book into the fire and shouted, girls do not have to learn much. All a Jewish daughter needs to know is how to prepare gefilte fish, cut noodles fine, and give the man plenty of children. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, She pursued an an education on her own. Um, She was intrigued by the political turmoil around her and was particularly intrigued by nihilism and like the the nihilist uh movement that was uh involved in the assassination of alexander ii meanwhile her father continued to insist on a domestic future for her trying to arrange a marriage for her at the age of 15 uh they fought constantly about the issue he complained that she was going to become a loose woman she insisted she would marry for love alone she was continuing to work at the corset shop where she was uh fending off unwelcome advances from Russian officers and other men had had a troubling and violent encounter, which some of her biography biographers have characterized as rape, although we don't know precisely what happened, that she she felt forever uh, soured her uh, her interactions with men. So sad, troubling, young life. In 1885, her sister Helena made plans to move to New York uh, in the United States to join their sister Lena and her husband, who were already there. Goldman wanted to join her sister, but their father refused to allow it. Um, Helena was offering to pay for the trip, but he was refusing. Goldman threatened to throw herself into the Neva River if she couldn't go, and finally the father agreed. And so in 1885, Helena and Emma arrived at New York City's Castle Garden, the entry point for immigrants, and made their way to Rochester, where Lena and her husband were living. Fleeing the rising anti-Semitism of St. Petersburg, their parents and brothers joined them a year later. Goldman began working there as a seamstress, and then later transitioned to a job in another shop after uh, requesting and being denied a raise. Um, and in this in this job, she met a man named Jacob Kirshner, uh, who with whom she uh, fell in love, and they married in February 1887. Uh, But their relationship was tumultuous. Less than a year after the wedding, they were divorced, um, Mm. reunited after the husband threatened to kill himself, and then then she left him again. Meanwhile, she was becoming more and more politically engaged with uh, the world around her, particularly at the aftermath of executions related to the 1886 Haymarket affair in Chicago. Um, And she started to um, uh, be intrigued by the political philosophy of anarchism, uh, which is the movement she would, you know, become most famously associated with. Her parents were distressed about her, uh, her divorce, uh, considered her behavior loose and refused to allow her to return to their home after that. And so she took her sewing machine and a bag uh, and five dollars left Rochester and headed to New York City, where she met two men who uh, who would greatly um, influence her life. She went to um, a cafe known as kind of a gathering place for radicals, uh, and was interest- introduced to Alexander Berkman, 
who was an anarchist who invited her to a public speech that evening. Uh, they went to hear Johann Most, uh, the editor of a radical publication called Freiheit, um, and an advocate of propaganda of the deed, um, which is the use of violence to instigate change. Yeah. Uh, she was impressed by his oration, and he took her under her wing. He trained her in public speaking and uh, encouraged her and, and uh, told her that she was to take his place when he was gone as a, you know, as a, as a, as an orator. One of her first public talks uh, in support of the cause was in Rochester. Um, and she describes kind of like this mystical experience of like losing awareness of everything around her and getting sort of swept up in her, uh, her oratory. Goldman was uh, excited by that experience and worked to um, refine her public persona and to develop her, her speaking skills. Um, she quickly found herself butting heads with most she um, felt like he was trying to control her and resolved to express herself and her views. Most became furious and told her, whoever is not with me is against me. And uh, they had sort of a parting of the ways. Um, and she stopped working with him and his uh, his publication, Freiheit, and uh, started working with another publication. Um, meanwhile, she'd begun a friendship with Berkman, uh, the man who took her to that speech to begin with, um, whom she called Sasha. Um, they became lovers, moved into a communal apartment. Uh, their relationship had numerous difficulties, but they would have um, a close bond over the, over the decades. In 1892, Emma Goldman joined with Berkman and another uh, friend of theirs um, in opening an ice cream shop in Worcester, Massachusetts, uh, mm. which is where I'm from. So that's, that's a fun connection for me. Then the next turning point in her story is uh, the Homestead Strike. So in June 1892, a steel plant in Homestead, Pennsylvania, owned by Andrew Carnegie, um, became the focus of national attention when talks between the Carnegie Steel Company and the Amalgamated Association of Iron and Steel Workers broke down. Uh, the factory's manager was Henry Clay Frick. Uh, he was a fierce opponent of the union. And when a final round of talks failed at the end of June, Management closed the plant and locked out the workers who immediately went on strike. Strikebreakers were brought in and the company hired Pinkerton guards to protect them. On July 6th, the fight broke out between 300 Pinkerton guards and a crowd of armed union workers. Uh, it was a 12-hour gunfight where seven guards and nine strikers were killed. The majority of the nation's newspapers expressed support of the strikers and Goldman and Berkman resolved to assassinate Frick, um, which they hoped would inspire the workers to revolt against capitalism. So they made their plan. Berkman was going to go carry out the assassination. And then Goldman was supposed to stay behind to explain his motives after he went to jail. He would be in charge of the deed. She would be in charge of the, the propaganda. Um, so he sets off to go to Homestead and, and do this assassination. Um, Emma Goldman decides to raise funds for their work via prostitution, um, inspired apparently by a character in the novel Crime and Punishment. Um, and so she okay. goes out to try and do this. A man sees her, takes her into a salon, buys her a beer, gives her $10 and tells her she doesn't have the knack for <laughs> prostitution <laughs> and that oh. she should quit, <laughs> which I 
I think this comes from her memoir, this, uh, this story, like, I, I want to go find the original and read it. Um, and not just the excerpt, like the, the little quotations Yikes. that I came across, because like, yeah. wow. Uh, anyway, so on July 23, uh, Berkman makes his way to Frick's office with a concealed handgun, uh, shoots Frick three times and stabs him in the leg. And a group of workers, instead of joining him, um, beat him unconscious, and he is carried away by the police. Um, he was convicted of attempted murder and sentenced to 22 years in prison. The police were convinced that Goldman was involved in the plot, um, not not entirely without cause, um, and raid her apartment, uh, but find no evidence. Um, nevertheless, they pressured her landlord into evicting her. She had a falling out with Johann Most over his lack of support for the assassination attempt. He was a vocal advocate, if you if you remember, uh, for propaganda of the deed. Um, mm-hmm. So I think she she expected his backing there and didn't get it. In the midst of the panic of eighteen ninety three, the like economic crisis, Goldman began speaking to um, crowds in New York City. Uh, she gave a speech in Union Square uh, with thousands in attendance, which resulted in charges of inciting a riot, although she de- denied saying the things that undercover agents claimed she had said. But the jury was persuaded um, and frightened by her politics. The judge spoke of her as a dangerous woman. Uh, she was sentenced to one year in the Blackwell's Island Penitentiary. She fell ill inside, uh, was sent to the infirmary, and there she befriended a doctor and began studying medicine. And when she was released after 10 months, a crowd of nearly 3,000 people greeted her, uh, like celebrating her release. And she was she was swamped with requests for interviews and lectures. To make money, she decided to continue the medical studies so that she could pursue like medical work, I guess. Um not your average side hustle, but I guess she's not your average person. Right. Um, she was interested in particular in m- the midwifery and massage fields of medicine. Um, okay. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, which were unavailable to nursing students in the U.S. Um, so she, she sailed to Europe. She was lecturing in London, Glasgow, and Edinburgh and meeting with renowned anarchists there um, and got additional training, I guess. In Vienna, she received two diplomas for midwifery. Um, that she would be able to, you know, use to to um, to work back in the U.S. She was alternating between lecture touring and midwifery. Um, conducted her first cross country tour. C- conducted the first cross country tour by an anarchist speaker. And in November 1899, she returned to Europe to speak, where she helped to organize the 1900 International Anarchist Congress, uh, which took place on the outskirts of Paris working together with another anarchist named Hippolyte Havel, who then immigrated to the U.S. um, and uh, lived with her in Chicago. In uh, September of 1901, President William McKinley was assassinated, um, shot by Leon Cholgosh during a public speaking event in Buffalo, New York. Uh, McKinley died eight days later. Cholgosh claimed to be an anarchist and said he had been inspired to act after attending a speech by Emma Goldman. So the authorities used this as um, a reason to charge Goldman with planning McKinley's assassination. Wow. Uh, Cholgosh, mm-hmm, yeah. Cholgosh had tried to um, befriend Goldman and other prominent anarchist 
you know, speakers, writers, thinkers, um, but had not really been welcomed into their circles. Chilgosh repeatedly denied Goldman's involvement, um, but the police kept her in custody and subjected to her her to numerous interrogations. Uh, No evidence was found linking her to the attack, and she was released after two weeks of detention. Throughout the whole thing, she refused to condemn Chilgosh, unlike many, um, many other, you know, folks in her circles. Many newspapers held the anarchist movement responsible for the murder. um, And anarchism as a philosophy sort of fell out of favor. And socialism gained more support among radicals, largely as a result of this assassination. In the wake of all of this, Goldman withdrew from public life to some extent. Uh, she used the uh, pseudonym E.G. Smith um, and worked in private nursing jobs in New York City, um, had, a, had a bout of pretty severe depression. In 1903, Congress passed the Anarchist Exclusion Act, uh, which stirred a new wave of activism and pulled Goldman back into the movement. A coalition of people and organizations across kind of the left side of the political spectrum um, opposed the law as a violation of freedom of speech. An English anarchist named John Turner was arrested under the Anarchist Exclusion Act and threatened with deportation. And uh, Goldman worked with the Free Speech League to champion his cause. Uh, They lost, but she felt that it was a victory for kind of the public image of the anarchist philosophy, anarchist movement. In 1906, she started her own publication uh, titled Mother Earth, which she said she wanted to be a place of expression for the young idealists in arts and letters. Uh, She was the first editor and a frequent contributor. And in May 18th, on May 18th of that same year, Alexander Berkman was released from prison. Um, Goldman met him on the train platform carrying a bouquet of roses, Uh, but was shocked by how much he had changed and how sickly he looked. He struggled to readjust to life on the outside. Uh, An attempted speaking tour ended in failure. He purchased a revolver uh, when they were in Cleveland with the intent of killing himself. Upon returning to New York, he learned that she had been arrested with a group of activists uh, meeting to reflect on Cholgosh and that whole incident and was kind of invigorated anew Uh, by, you know, wanting to advocate for her um, and set about securing their release. Uh, He took the the helm of uh, Mother Earth, the publication, in 1907, while Goldman toured the country to raise funds to keep it operating. Uh, In 1908, Goldman met and fell in love with Ben Reitman, uh, the so-called hobo doctor. Yeah, uh, (laughs) long story. he and Goldman began an affair. Um, uh, Alexander Berkman was also having affairs at this time. Reitman and Goldman shared a commitment to free love. Um, and uh, Reitman had a number of other lovers. Um, Goldman was pretty much just with him at that time and uh, tra- was you know, struggled to reconcile her, like her feelings of jealousy with her belief in free love. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, I think this is all coming from, like, her memoirs and, like, letters and stuff. Uh, Goldman started working with Margaret Sanger some. Margaret Sanger was an advocate of access to contraception, um, the person who coined the term birth control. 
1916, Emma Goldman was arrested for giving lessons in public on how to use contraceptives. In 1915, she conducted a nationwide speaking tour in part to raise awareness about contraception. And although the nation's attitude toward the topic seemed to be um, becoming, you know, more open, she was arrested in 1916 uh, as she was about to give another public lecture and charged with violating the Comstock law. Um, she refused to pay the $100 fine and instead uh, spent two weeks in a prison workhouse. Uh, when the U.S. entered World War I and passed the Selective Service Act of 1917, uh, which required um, all males aged 21 to 30 to register for military conscri conscription, uh, she declared in Mother Earth her intent to resist conscription and oppose U.S. involvement in the war. Um, so she and Berkman organized the No Conscription League of New York, uh, which became the vanguard for anti-draft activism. Chapters began to appear in other cities. Um, police started raiding the group's public events to find young men who had not registered for the draft, which makes sense. Right. Uh, so they, they then shifted their effort to um, creating and distributing pamphlets and other writings rather than, you know, holding, holding meetings for draft dodgers. Um, Gotta, gotta have a, a, a nimble strategy. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. On June 15th, 1917, uh, Emma Goldman and, uh, Alexander Berkman were arrested during a raid of their offices. Uh, the authorities seized a wagon load of anarchist records and propaganda. The New York Times reported that Goldman asked to change into a more appropriate outfit and, uh, em emerged for her arrest in a gown of royal purple. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, they were they were charged with conspiracy to induce persons not to register under the newly enacted Espionage Act and were held on twenty five thousand dollars bail each. Uh, they were found guilty and received the maximum sentence, two years imprisonment and a ten thousand dollar fine each with the possibility of deportation after their release from prison. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Goldman wrote to a friend, two years imprisonment for having made an uncompromising stand for one's ideal. Why that is a small price. And she got to know a couple of other prominent female anarchist figures while she was in prison as well. They were released from prison during the Red Scare of 1919, 1920. And uh, Attorney General Alexander Mitchell Palmer and J. Edgar Hoover, who was um, head of the U.S. Department of Justice's General Intelligence Division, now, now the FBI, um, were intent on using the Anarchist Exclusion Act and its 1918 expansion to deport any non-citizens they could identify as advocates of anarchy or revolution. While they were in prison, uh, J. Edgar Hoover had written, uh, Emma, Emma Goldman and Alexander Berkman are beyond doubt two of the most dangerous anarchists in this country and return to the community will result in undue harm. A deportation hearing was held on October 27th, where Goldman refused to answer questions about her beliefs. Uh, on the grounds that her American citizenship invalidated any attempt to deport her under the Anarchist Exclusion Act, which could only be enforced against non-citizens of the U.S. The Department of Labor had authority over deportation decisions and determined that the revocation of her husband's American citizenship in 1908 after his conviction uh, had revoked her citizenship as well. And so ruled that she was not a citizen and was therefore subject to deportation. Emma Goldman and Alexander Bergman were deported along with 249 
other people um, arriving in Finland on January 17th, 1920, and they were transported from there to Russia. Um, Goldman had been a supporter of the Bolshevik Revolution, um, but quickly became disillusioned. Traveling around the country, they found repression, mismanagement, and corruption instead of the equality and worker empowerment that they had dreamed of. They met with Vladimir Lenin, who assured them that government suppression of press liberties was justified and told them there can be no free speech in a revolutionary period. That's the, That was not aligned with Goldman's philosophy. They were supporters of a strike, which was violently suppressed by the military, and that was kind of the last straw, and they decided to leave the country. Um, in December 1921, they went to the Lat- Latvian capital city of Riga, uh, and moved from there on to Berlin, where they lived for several years. During this time, Goldman wrote a series of articles about her time in Russia for uh, Pul- Pulitzer's newspaper, The New York World, um, which were later collected and published in book form uh, under the titles My Disillusionment in Russia and My Further Disillusionment in Russia. Um, <laughs> Goldman did not like the titles, but was not able to get them changed. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Emma Goldman did not like Berlin. It was not, it wasn't the city for her. So uh, Alexander Berkman stayed there and Emma Goldman moved to London in September, 1924. When she arrived, uh, the novelist Rebecca West arranged a reception dinner for her with prominent, you know, public intellectuals in attendance, philosopher Bertrand Russell, uh, the novelist H.G. Wells, uh, more than 200 other guests. Um, When she spoke of her dissatisfaction with the Soviet government, the audience was shocked and some left the gathering. Others berated her for prematurely criticizing the communist experiment. In 1925, uh, she was um, potentially like there, there was some some risk that she was going to be deported from the UK, uh, but James Colton, a Scottish anarchist uh, Goldman had first met in Glasgow, offered to marry her in order to provide British citizenship. Uh, they were only distant acquaintances, but she accepted and they were married on June 27th, 1925. Goldman was 58 at the time. That secured her, uh, you know, her citizenship uh, and her her, uh, her status, um, which allowed her to travel to France and Canada. They uh, continued to be married on paper and to, you know, correspond uh, <laughs> until... <laughs> as until married Col- couples do. Yes, as they do. And in until, uh, until Col- Colton died in 1936. Um, in 1928, she began writing her autobiography with the support of a group of American admirers, including journalist H.L. Mencken, poet Edna St. Vincent Millay, we know something about her, art collector Peggy Guggenheim. She secured a cottage in the French coastal city of Saint-Tropez and spent two years there working on her autobiography. Um, Alexander Berkman had pretty sharp feedback for her, which she incorporated, um, but it strained their relationship. She intended the book uh, titled Living My Life to be a single volume and that that she wanted the price to be something the working class could afford. She urged no more than $5. Uh, her publisher, Alfred A. Knopf, uh, released it as two volumes, which were sold together for $7.50, which made her furious, um, but she wasn't able to get that changed. In 1933, she was given permission to lecture in the United States under the condition that she speak only about her autobiography 
and about drama. She had done some like scholarly work on drama, um, you know, kind of during her exile, like, like she wasn't busy enough. Um, she was not to address current political events. Uh, she returned to New York on February 2nd, 1934, uh, and, uh, and was able to conduct some, some speaking engagements, um, with generally positive press coverage. Her visa expired in May. She went to Toronto in order to file another request to visit the U.S., but this second attempt was denied. Um, So she stayed in Canada writing articles for U.S. publications. Uh, In the midst of all of this, um, Alexander Berkman became ill, had some surgeries, uh, was recovering poorly, um, attempted to end his own life, and ended up dying in 1936. In July 1936... The Spanish Civil War started, and Goldman was invited to Barcelona by the Spanish anarchist movement uh, and went there for a period of time. Um, welcomed by the CNTFAI organizations, uh, Confederación Nacional del Trabajo and uh, Federación Anarquista Ibérica. Hopefully I got that okay enough. This was her first time in her life living in a community run by and for anarchists, according to anarchist principles. And she wrote, in all my life, I have not met with such warm hospitality, comradeship and solidarity. She began to worry about the future of Spain's anarchism when the CNT FAI joined a coalition government in 1937, uh, which was in opposition to the core anarchist principle of abstaining from state structures. And, uh, more distressingly to her, made numerous concessions to communist forces in the name of uniting against fascism. She was uh, traveling and then returned to Spain, and the CNT FAI appeared to her like people in a burning house. Um, and uh, she had difficulty uh, rallying support for the Spanish anarchists. She returned to Canada in 1939. As the events preceding World War II began to unfold in Europe, she um, she stood pretty strongly against war in general, all war waged by governments. On Saturday, February 17th, 1940, she suffered a debilitating stroke, um, became paralyzed on her right side, and could not speak, although her hearing was not affected. Um, for three months, she uh, received visitors, um, was improving slightly, um, on one occasion, she gestured to her address book, but her, her uh, she, pretty minimal kind of ability to um, communicate and interact. And then on May 8th, she suffered another stroke uh, and died six la- days later in Toronto in May of 1940 at the age of 70. Um, she was described, yeah, it's quite a life. She was described as mm-hmm. the most dangerous woman in America. At one point, um, and um, her her fame faded for a period of time, and then she was kind of rediscovered in the 1970s with the rise of kind of second wave feminism and the uh, a resurgence of the anarchist movement. She was the author of six books, um, including "Living My Life" and the the. Uh, uh, my disillusionment, disillusionment in Russia, the uh, ones that I mentioned, um, a biography of fellow anarchist Voltairine de Clare, um, and countless pamphlets and articles. So I was, I was surprised sort of how much there was, uh, about Emma Goldman, um, which is mm-hmm. why this deep dive is so long. Um, but yeah, um, 
complicated person. Um, yeah. But really, really interesting stuff. Uh, so that's her. Wow. Are you ready for a quiz? I think so. Okay. Um, I don't have anything super special going on with a theme here. It's just all stuff that connects to Emma Goldman. All right. So this is a quiz about Emma Goldman. Question one. Four U.S. presidents have been assassinated. Two of the assassins' names are pretty well known, John Wilkes Booth and Lee Harvey Oswald. A third, uh, Cholgosh, featured prominently in the deep dive. Who is the fourth assassin, the one who assassinated James A. Garfield? Uh, That would be the just serious loser of a dude, Charles Guiteau. It is Charles Guiteau. Nice work. Um, Yeah. It's just like, you didn't give me a job, man. Yeah. So I'm going to shoot you. Mm-hmm. A, what, a, what, a, what a deal. Yep. That, is, that is exactly correct. And I think you remembered more detail than I did. So nice work. <laughs> um, yeah. All right. So you're at 10 points. Uh, question two. Emma Goldman was interviewed by a prominent female journalist who described her as a modern Joan of Arc. Uh, this was... Um, I think for that first round of uh, inciting a riot. This journalist was herself quite a powerhouse, noted especially for her undercover work, having herself institutionalized to write an expose of an insane asylum, as well as her record-breaking trip around the world in 72 days. Who was this groundbreaking figure? I, I think I know this. And this is one of those facts that like, I have not returned to enough to be 100% confident, but I think it's mm-hmm. Nellie Bly. Nellie Bly is correct. Okay. Yeah. Okay, yeah. good. Someday I'll do a deep dive on Nellie Bly, but we'll need her to be a triple stumper first. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, question three. Um, Goldman advocated for the English anarchist John Turner, um, but she obviously wasn't a lawyer. She was, she was enough things um, <laughs> without that. What noted attorney was on his legal team for his 1904 appeal to the Supreme Court. Uh, But this attorney would ultimately be best known for his work on a case in Tennessee 21 years later. Uh, I I think you're talking about Clarence Darrow. I am talking about Clarence Darrow. Yeah. Uh, Clarence Darrow of of the Scopes Monkey Trial. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Why they put a monkey on trial, I'll never understand. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So worked on uh, representing John Turner and, uh, you know, sort of uh, advocating for freedom of speech, but was ultimately unsuccessful. But yeah, that was that was 24 years before the thing that he's best remembered for. Oh. Um, yeah. Question four. Uh, Emma Goldman is a character in two separate Broadway musicals. One is an adaptation of an E.L. Doctorow novel, which has come up before on the podcast in a different quiz that I wrote a while ago. The other is a Stephen Sondheim musical. And I've actually mentioned four of the other characters. We've mentioned four of the other characters uh, earlier in this quiz. Name either musical. Okay, good. Because I know assassins. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> the El Doctor. I'm like, man, this is a title that I'm aware of, and I'm never gonna think of. Mm-hmm. Ragtime. Ragtime. 
I always time. forget that that's. I forget that's a novel. Mm-hmm. It's just because I I don't know it. Anyway, yeah. Okay, good. Whew. Assassins was okay. I don't know Assassins actually. It was entertaining. It was kind of forgettable musically. Yeah. So. Okay. You are crushing this quiz, and uh, yeah. Um, question five: Goldman was greatly shaken by the trial and execution of two Italian anarchists in Massachusetts. Uh, this took place while she was living in Canada when she was un- unable to re-enter the U.S. due to her deportation. Who were these two anarchists? I always have to make sure that I'm remembering which pair of people was which um, with like murder trials in the mm-hmm. early 20th century um, or with, with trials that led to executions. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe that's Sacco and Vanzetti. It is Sacco and Vanzetti. Nice work. Because then there's Leopold and Loeb who were, they were just like trying to commit the perfect murder or something like that. Yeah. Like, I don't really know like, much about them. Yeah. But I, I, those two, the, the fact that there are two, like two pairs of names that go with each other for trials that are important. Yeah. Yeah. Leopold and Loeb. I need to remember them in the future because that always like, I'm like, wait, who were they? What's the deal with them? Uh, I don't know if you're, if I, you've completely crushed this quiz. So you're at 50 points. Um, and we're going to call this final category organizations in the news. Uh, I don't know how to feel about that. So I'm going to go 30 points. Okay. Maybe I should have given it an easier title. Um, yeah. Emma Goldman and Margaret Sanger worked closely together for a portion of their respective careers. As I've mentioned, the organizations that Margaret Sanger founded, uh, are known now or have have evolved into an organization known by what name? I actually was going to say this when you were talking about her, and I thought it was interesting that you did not mention Planned Parenthood. Yeah. Yes, Margaret <laughs> Sanger is the, the founder of what we now call Planned Parenthood. Yeah, that is okay. that is correct. And Planned Parenthood is also doing important work. So, all right. Hey, um, congratulations on your 80 points thank you and your and your um perfect performance on this quiz had to happen sometime yeah no i think you i think you've had i think you've had a perfect quiz before i mean i'm sure i mean the yeah. the num the stats at, at this point would i'm getting good at it. not putting like you know what have i got on my bookshelf <laughs> <laughs> questions the, into the quiz but that's the best place to go yeah sometimes i listen to like some of our earlier things and it's like some of my quiz questions i'm like i see what i was trying to do but it's very like what have i got in my pocket Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. uh anyway well hey now i'm depressed about planned parenthood and stuff but um but this was fun other than that it was yeah thank you yeah Thank you. Um, And thank you, listeners, for spending your time with us. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, Leave a rating or review if you would. It'll help us with the algorithm. If you want to check out our Patreon, it's patreon.com slash potentpotables. And if you have friends who are Jeopardy fans, let them know about our podcast. 
You can all find us on Facebook at Potent Potables, on Twitter at Potent Potables 1. Our email address is potentpotablescast at gmail.com, and our website is potentpod.com. And a quick shout out, uh, the, the Avs just won the Stanley Cup. Woo, go Avs. Uh, and until next week, may your minds be quick and your buzzers be quicker.